All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to start in a couple of minutes. So I'd encourage you to kind of latecomers, stragglers in to come in and take whatever available seats. A couple of seats up front if you want. Hello and good afternoon. It's a full house. Look at that. Oh, good on you guys. After lunch, I was thinking that this was going to be a challenging session. Everyone, you know, carb coma after nasi kanda lunch. And I assumed that everybody would be sleepy. But thank you so much for coming and filling up this room. I'm looking forward to a very interesting conversation. Candid and honest and difficult. But um, a conversation that we need to have nonetheless. Very quickly, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Melissa Idris. I'm a journalist and editor at Astro Awani. I currently um, host a, a news commentary show at, at 10 o'clock at night. You can watch that. It's called Consider This. My co-host is um, Sharad Kutten, who is the director of this, co-director of this festival. I've met many of you. I haven't met some of you, but there's still time this, this evening to catch up and get to know each other. But um, I just want to say very quickly in this Q&A, if you've attended some of the sessions that I've done before, I really don't like the Q&A format of panel discussions where you talk first and then ask questions in the last five minutes. So what I'm going to do, because this is such an interesting topic, is I'm going to open it up to questions really early on. So if you hear something that you think is interesting, that you would like further elaborated, or you just want to follow up on, raise your hand, and Navia very nicely will run a mic to you and just stand up and introduce yourself and ask your question to the panelists. I would encourage you to keep it short so we have a lot of time for everyone to ask their questions and to kind of keep your comments quite succinct if it's not a specific question. All right, so we're talking about collective history here and I want to hear from everyone. I want everyone to join into this conversation. Okay, let me introduce my panelists now. I'm going to start uh, next to me. I have Hannah Alkaf, who is a author of a young adult novel, The Weight of, the Sky, of Our Sky. She's got a lot of fans in the crowd, I see, Hannah. <laughs> She's written many other books, of course. Um, and it's the first young adult novel by a Malaysian author to be published internationally. So we're very proud of her. <laughs> And next to her, we have Ho Sok Fong, who is a full-time writer from Kedah, who wrote, of course, her title um, novel, The Lake Like a Mirror, which is translated, um, the first to be translated into English of your, of your works, right? A collection of short stories, that's right. Okay, all right, she's written many other short stories, um, many that have won her uh, grants and awards, one from China Times Jury Award as well as Taiwan United News Jury Award. So, celebrated um, author as well. And of course, right at the end, rounding up this panel needs no introduction, renowned economist Jomo Kwame Sundram, member of the Council of Eminent Persons um, and leading scholar on developmental economics. Uh, many of you heard his in conversation yesterday. All right, okay, let's uh, begin very quickly with what we're going to be discussing. Now, this panel discussion essentially will take a closer look at the Malaysian memory of the May 13th incident. Uh, this is the 50th year, so uh, 1969 it happened, so 50 years of 
not quite understanding what happened on May 13th. So for those in the room who are not familiar with the history, just allow me to give you the bare facts of the incident. 1969, 12 years after Malaya gained independence from the British, on May 13th, that's three days after the third general election, we had bloody riots in Kuala Lumpur. So in the third general election, opposition parties, DAP and Gerakan, which are mainly Chinese dominant, Chinese majority parties, they had made significant gains in the uh, elections against the ruling coalition. That was at that time the Alliance Party, later on became Barisan National. Now the immediate effect of May 13th was that a state of emergency was declared across the country, a curfew was imposed, parliament was suspended for two years, the National Operations Council came into place and had supreme decision-making powers for 18 months, and it was really a turning point in the Malaysian history. So again, for the political side, it led to the resignation of Tunku Abdul Rahman, the first prime minister. It led to the succession of Tun Abdul Razak as prime minister. It also led to the adoption of the national economic, the new economic policy, excuse me, the NEP, an affirmative action program which is targeted to the advancements of Malays. And that has really been the economic narrative of our country since. So on the political side, the National Alliance, sorry, the Alliance Party became Barisan National, led by AMNO, and it has continued to govern along ethnic lines since it came into power. So on that note, ladies and gentlemen, that is the context of our panel discussion today. I see a very mixed crowd um, in the audience. Can I just get a show of hands? Who here was born after May 13th, 1969? That's a significant portion of the crowd. And, and those who were born before? Okay, all right. Let's begin there because I think what's, we don't really have, we're not on the same page as to where we are in this kind of collective memory, right? So I really wanted to begin there with um, what we know, our baseline knowledge of May 13th because I have to confess, I'm not a historian. I only know what I read on Wikipedia. Uh, slightly more than that, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm going to ask, um, let's start with Sukfong first. Your memory, like your childhood memory growing up, what were you told about May 13th? What did you grow up believing uh, as a child, as a young adult about this incident? Well, I born uh, the second year after May 13th. That is the year 1970, where we start to have the new economic uh, policy. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, policy then. So I remember, uh, well, as a child, I remember that is a once uh, during the 1976 or 1977, while I was still in the Dajat, in, uh, Dajasatu. And there is one, one day 
uh, there is a rumor, I think it's after there is a war in uh, Vietnam. And suddenly there is a rumor uh, around the neighbor saying that, oh, we are going to have uh, Darula uh, the next week because there is a war in uh, Vietnam. So, and then we take it very, very true that, and then I remember the second morning, the second day morning when this rumor was spreading out and behind the door, we locked the door, right? And my mother still saying, oh, I already have the school uh, clothing, everything prepared. And then I said, then my mother still asked me, do you think is it the Darula today really? So, so, so I said, we have to go to the school and see. Of course, there is a, just a rumor, so nothing happened. So that means I remember this very clearly, even after the seven years after the uh, 1969, May 13, um, Chinese in the village or in the small town still hunted very much of this, of this uh, memory. Of course, we as a children, we don't, we don't have the memory of how, how things were going on in the Darula, but my parents, they will remember. Okay. So this is what I remember from a small town that I experienced. That I in Kedah, is it? You yeah, grew up in Kedah? In Kedah. Okay. And while well, I'm working on, working lately these few years on the, my first novel, my first novel is actually about a, a May 13 that I'm going to, that I'm actually writing now. And I do a lot of field work. So I do the interview around every places from Kedah, uh, Penang, until the Kuala Lumpur. Uh, I interview whoever they want to talk and they want to tell me about their memory of the May 13. Mm -hmm. And I interview some, some hawker flower, Chinese in the pasar. I interview person who really is their victim of the family. And, and some of them, if the victim of the family, they can tell a story that is really uh, heartbreaking. And I almost feel that the, the trauma, when you listen to their story, the trauma of their story can arise some sadness feeling inside me also. Of course, I don't have the trauma of Medellin, but I have other kind of trauma in my life. Right. And that seems to be a mystery echoing. And that is a sadness. Right. So when healing. you interviewed them, you, you felt what they felt as well. Yeah, because there is a, and I feel so good because although they have such a trauma, they silence for almost how many years, fifty years, but they still live through that. And and seeing them how they carry such a heavy trauma, bringing all this, and they try still to live yep. and to heal others. It, that is really touching for me. I okay. can feel like the sadness inside me, like a cellulose that is hardened and start to soften by other people's sadness. Okay. Sorry. All right. and that is really touching for me. Well, the, the healing begins when you talk about it, right? I want to move on to Hannah because your book deals directly with the events of May 13th. I mean, it's a young adult novel set in this time. Now, I'm sure you had to do a lot of research um, to do this book, but if we could put a pin in that research, where did you start? What was your baseline, Hannah, when you decided to do this project and said, I'm going to set this historical novel on May 13th? What were you operating? What framework were you operating within? 
uh, I was operating on the framework that I think most of us in the room, who all of us who raised our hands, that we grew up after 1969, um, I think we all had the same framework, which was two paragraphs in our sejarah textbook. That was my framework. Two paragraphs that I hafal for exams and then promptly forgot again afterwards. If I, if I just may interject, in the Form 5 history textbook, May 13th is mentioned four times, but not in any meaningful way. It's just touched on. It's not even explained. Yeah, and they call it an incident, as if somebody lost their shoes or, you know, like somebody scraped somebody's car. It was the May 13th incident, as if people didn't actually lose their lives during this time. So that's the framework I was operating on, which is the framework most of us grew up operating on. Um, and I asked this question at my panel yesterday, but I'm going to bet that for most of us, after Form 5, the next time you heard about May 13th, it was politicians telling us to behave ourselves or another May 13th would happen. Um, and, and that's all we got. That's all we ever got. So that was my baseline, if you can call it that, which was really nothing. And conversations at home, did you talk about it at home? No. Not at all? Okay. Not at all. All right. Okay, I'm going to move to Jomo now. You were 17, May 13th, 1969. You were in RMC, so Royal Military College. What are your memories of that day? Well, my main memory was to see the fires um, over Kuala Lumpur. From Sungai on the hill, you can see. And then soon after that, being uh, asked to, to volunteer to, to, to give blood. Uh, I was 16, so I, I uh, was old enough to make the decision to, to voluntarily give blood. But I think uh, what we, um, we risk uh, uh, missing if we focus simply on what actually happened, because there will be many, many different personal memories mm. and uh, also imagined memories. Because for many people, they hear it from others and they try to put together a picture of what May 13. I think it's very important in the theme of this uh, this literary festival to to put the context, get the historical context right. And I think there are two particular elements which are important. Uh, first, um, the, the the larger context of colonialism, and so this country is created out of colonialism. We were based. Malaysia was conceived as a hodgepodge put together of all the, the British territories in this region. And then uh, Brunei opted out, and then later Singapore opted out. Uh, but the larger impact of colonialism is important for us to remember because it's more than five centuries since the Portuguese conquered Malacca and how it destroyed Malacca, which was a thriving major port. According to Tomé Pires, it was the greatest port in the world. Uh, but also the subsequent transformations. Singapore this year is marking the 200th anniversary of the so-called founding of Singapore. Now, this was the Lee Kuan Yew narrative that it was a fishing village and then thanks to Mr. Raffles and so on. Now this narrative is being challenged and we have a deeper understanding of how, the, how, how, to, how to question many of these stories. In fact, the deal the East India Company made with the Sultan was actually to have the right to establish a factory to process spices. You know, fast forward, Sultan Nazrin has published two books. 
both economic histories of the region. Looking at the impact of colonialism, we were the most important colony for the British. In fact, the post-war recovery of the British Empire would have been impossible if not for Malaya. Malaya contributed the single largest, was the single largest source of export earnings. And we tried to understand a lot of policies, including, for example, why rice growing was encouraged in, in different parts of the country, but mainly in the Federated Malay States during the British period. It was to save the foreign exchange, so to maximize the foreign exchange for the, for the British uh, Empire. So if we go forward, then in the 1930s, you begin to have challenges to that empire. And this is where you have the divide and rule, the categories, the ethnic categories in which we, which we have now are, are, are basically created from the 1930s. So you have these categories, what we now call Malays, what we now call Indians, now we, what we call Chinese, etc., etc. All these categories are basically created during this particular period from the 1930s. And the result, and then you have, in, after the war, the elimination the, from the 30s onwards, but also especially after the war, the elimination of the left. Okay, so you have an offer of a people's constitution from 1947 uh, um, by a coalition called the Putra AMCJA, led by Dr. Burhanuddin and, and uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Tan Cheng Lok, and then that gets repressed. You know, and, and a whole bunch of people are put in jail and many people flee to the jungle in 1948. And there's a whole story there which we don't even talk about. And then after, the, after, after independence, which you correctly uh, highlighted, from the middle of the 1960s, you have another massive repression of the left. In Penang, for example, there were thousands of people who were arrested, detained under the Internal Security Act because they were associated with the so-called uh, Socialist Front, the Labour Party, and so on and so forth. So we have a history. So the, his, the elimination of the, so of the left is important because then there was a political vacuum, an ideological vacuum, and the only thing to fill that vacuum was what some of us term ethno-populism, okay? the mobilization along ethnic lines. Look at the fluid categories which when UMNO, for example, was created, UMNO was not the first Malay party. There was, uh, before that, the uh, PKMM uh, in 1945. But when UMNO was created in 1946, who was it led by? A man named On Bin Jaffa, whose mother uh, was, was a Circassian uh, lady from, uh, uh, from the uh, Ottoman Empire. Um, and then you have a lot of people in Penang. Uh, recently, Mr. S.M. Mohammad Idris passed away. And uh, S.M. Mohamed Idris was a member of AMNO because AMNO in those days included the Muslim League. And, and uh, so Indians, so you had meetings of AMNO conducted in Tamil, conducted in Javanese, for example, in Western, Western Johor and so on and so forth. So these categories which we now see as almost sacrosanct, ethnic categories, are all basically created during this period. The Chinese, the differences between different types of Chinese not only the Cantonese and the Hokkien and so on and so forth, all these things are basically obscured. So you have a discourse, a discourse which is essentially ethno-populist, which emerges in, during this period, during the 1960s, when the, all the leaders of the Socialist Front and the leader of the Islamic Party passed were all held under the Internal Security Act. 
So there is a vacuum, and that vacuum was, was filled by ethnopopulism, which has been the dominant way of understanding things. So May 69, how do we understand May 69? Basically, people were fed up with the ruling Alliance Party, but they saw it differently. People, Malays who are fed up said, oh, this, this uh, government is giving too much to the non-Malays, particularly to the Chinese. And then conversely, for, for many non-Malays, they said, oh, this thing, you know, this thing is not working out very well for us, and it's all because of a Malay-dominated government. So it was very easy to see categories, uh, to see the whole history of this country in ethnopopulist terms. And we risk not taking advantage of the, the opportunity this uh, offers us to begin to understand and appreciate how many of these categories our understanding and how we see the world has been created by the, by, the, by the history of this period. If I could follow up on that, what is it that you want, like, what is it that you wish many of us understood or saw th through this, you know, understanding the, I guess, the, the colonial context, the ethnopopulism context, how do we then begin to have this conversation 50 years on, taking into account what you've just said to us? Well, this is essentially a literary festival, and, and many people think literature is basically fiction. And the first draft of fiction is what Donald Trump calls for fake news. Okay? <laughs> uh, but basically, uh, if we recognize that there is always, and we always think of things in, in terms of receive wisdom, receive knowledge, and if we realize that all our categories in understanding May 69 are essentially ethnic categories and little else. Then we begin to, to, then that begins to force us to critically ask ourselves how we understand things, how we understand different types of problems, different types of issues, not only 50 years ago, but also today. And I think that is very, very important. And that's where the role of young writers like yourselves becomes so important in interrogating, in challenging many of our simple stereotypes. Because these stereotypes are being reinforced by the dominant discourse. You know, it's being reinforced all the time. Uh, you know, we had a Congress, one or whatever it was Maro called. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, and it's, it's happening all the time. So I think it's very, very important to, to realize that these categories, uh, uh, I, I, I don't like to repeat myself, but even the word Malay, means different things in Indonesia, it means different things in, in, uh, in uh, the Philippines. And today, the, when, we, when we use the term Malay, it means a different thing from what it meant, say, 80 years ago, before World War II. So I think we have to really begin to, uh, to, to, to question even our language, our discourse, you know, because this, this discourse itself needs to be interrogated. And this is where fiction can do things which which state straightforward historians. I'm no historian. No? After Form 3, I never studied, uh, studied <laughs> history. Okay? But, you know, there are more eminent and more, much more qualified people that speak about history here. But we, this is where I think we need to begin to, 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 to... So, yes, we have a huge opportunity. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the title of this uh, theme, the theme right behind you, is Forwards and Afterwards. Okay? And you, we know just by pronouncing the words, Forwards can also mean F-O-R-W-A-R-D-S, right? And afterwards can, uh, afterwards can also mean uh, 
WARDS, you know, and and uh, so we need to begin to 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 think about what what we um, uh, what what it means, you know, because it's a it's a clever play of words. But if we don't even um, challenge our yeah. own language and our use of language and what it forces us to think about, then I think we have lost this opportunity, which the organizers of the festival uh, understood have, yeah. completely and I, I'm hoping that's what we we get to do today a little bit have a bit more of a wider conversation which is great to talk to you both of you writers because you know in tackling this and Joma brought that up I mean fiction is a great way to also talk about this as a collect as a community Hannah you chose this very difficult time and you chose the genre of young adult doubly sensitive, you, you know, young minds are reading this. How do you, how did you navigate that? Trying to, I guess, pick the right words, uh, pick the right context, um, be sensitive to, and not play into stereotype? It's a good question. <laughs> Gonna have to force me to think about how I actually did it, which is a thing that a writer doesn't try to do very much. If you interrogate the process too much, it might disappear and then you can't replicate it again. Um, no, but mostly when you're writing young adult fiction, no matter what the subject matter is, but more so when you're dealing with heavier subject matter or what some might call more sensitive subject matter. Um, and in this case, there's also the narrative of mental illness woven in and religion and faith and things like that. When you are talking about all these things, and as I say it, I know it sounds like I tried to do a lot with this book. I'm aware. Um, but as I say it, um, it just sounds like a lot more. Um, but when you're writing for young people, at least for me, what I have to be aware of is always keeping my audience in mind. I'm very gratified that adults have come up to me and said that they have read the book and enjoyed it. But at the same time, this is a book that is meant for young people. I wrote it for young people. And specifically, I wrote it for young Malaysians. And a lot of that is due to what Jomo was saying earlier about starting a discussion, starting a, like getting people to start asking questions about this dominant narrative that we have been presented this whole time. I wanted young people to start asking questions about our history and the way that it has been presented to us and the way that we are expected to receive it. Um, and as long as I remembered what that goal was, then the sensitivities or whatever you want to call them sort of just became part of the process. Okay. I wanted to tell the story first and foremost. So use storytelling. Yes. And you found that as a way to get people engaged. So your idea was just get people engaged talking about it before even attempting to delve deeper into ethnopopulism or into stereotypes or whatever. We don't have a baseline. Okay. We just talked about this baseline, this mythical baseline that we're supposed to have. We don't have it. We have two paragraphs of Form 5 history, which is not well written. And humans, we're not wired for that kind of, of, of being fed fact like this. We're wired for story. When you leave this, you're not going to remember facts and figures. You're going to remember the stories that we told you. That's what we remember. So part of it was, yes, to start people questioning, but part of it was also just giving us a narrative to hold on to. We don't have a baseline. At least this way, you can have some sort of baseline. And from there, you can start to question and find out more for yourself. But you have to start somewhere. And we don't even really have that place to start. So, Fung, you said you did a lot of research. How do you how do you address this in your work? 
I mean, how do you avoid the stereotypes in your work? Um, I, I don't like the stereotype. Uh, compared to stereotype, I will love more on the ambiguity. I think I'm, I actually work very much to explore into the way how to narrate character or the situation into the ambiguous um, uh, situation. I think uh, actually just like uh, Professor Jomo mentioned, uh, I think after, actually in the fact, most of the difficult thing to describe uh, in the history study, I think we always come to the ambiguity. Uh, it is very difficult to feel stable with the ambiguity. But I think this is the most best thing we, we have in, in, in the life as, as your being. So like, as a writer, so I, you use that? As a writer, I'm, I feel I'm, I'm interested and I desire to, to put the writing into the ambiguity, including the identity. Like uh, either there is an identity of a Chinese or the identity of a Malay, if I dare to write about the Malay like a Chinese Muslim, they have the both two uh, identity which uh, I want to work on the ambiguity that exists at, at the same time. Sorry, did you say so if I, you dare to write about it? You don't I already write about it? I, 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 I already wrote about this in the like a Mirror. Uh -huh. So in, the, in terms of the uh, May 13, um, okay, I work, I work hard on the, on the archive and it is... Um, so neglect that uh, when we go to a National Archive Malaysia in the Kuala Lumpur, uh, you never found the May 13, not anyone newspaper there. It is just empty there. So it just vanished, vanished in our record. So then we have to collect the story from the people's... Uh, uh, oral, history. oral history. Oral history. And I have a friend, uh, she is actually here. Uh, uh, her name is uh, Po Hyung Ho, the doctor from uh, USM. She actually doing the the major team uh, oral history a lot. So I I I get the help uh, from her, and I also searching around uh, people surrounding. So so um, uh, to 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 avoid the stereotype, I found that I have to ask the question that I I don't know that I can ask. I want to ask the question that I forget. I can ask. That Which is, is uh, such as, uh, um, okay, um, as a Chinese, we, we have a lot of uh, victim tone in the memory of the May 13. But at the same time, lately, uh, I mean, after these uh, 20 years, we also have the awareness that uh, this, this uh, splitting in between the Malay and Chinese uh, and others are, or non-Bumiputra uh, non and Bumiputra is actually uh, have a long connection with the uh, history okay. uh, of uh, British, uh, uh, British, uh, uh, yeah, their policy and also after the Japanese uh, rule and conquer. So we know about that, but yet, uh, so there there are a lot of discourse actually in the. In the in the Facebook in the in the uh, social media uh, by a lot of uh, NGO or the activist movement try to heal 
heal the gap. Try to heal the gap. So we actually often question a lot what is the identity uh, Chinese. Are you too thick or are you too detached to the, to the traditional uh, uh, definition? So we actually question that a lot in the, in the society. Uh, probably uh, this, is, this is not so accessible to, uh, to Malay friends because we, we, we feel uh, more easy to, to write in uh, Chinese, but we do question a lot of questions like this. And this is very actively uh, discussing about. about. So, so, but as a writer, I tend to ask the question, uh, deep down into where we feel uneasy, even for we search for the harmony relationship in between each other. So I feel, I myself feel very, very difficult, but I feel I have to Ask look into questions. the question which is, could be painful for each of us. We can't avoid because if you didn't do it so, it will be sound untrue. But you know, on that note, there are many people out there, I, I mean, there are many people who want to know what happened. I think Malaysia Kini on the 15th anniversary did a great series of reports on May 13th. Um, and there was, they did a survey, they commissioned a survey, and it found that 87% of people want to understand the May 13th tragedy better. And if you clicked on those reports, you'll see all the comments below that said, why open up all wounds? There is a danger in doing that. It's been 50 years, let history be history. Are Malaysians ready to handle the truth? And what good can understanding what happened on May with May 13th do at this point in time 50 years on? So this was a really interesting juxtaposition to me. I mean, this, these were the comments coming on from this story that said 87% wanted to know what happened, or wanted to understand it better. And, and for me, that is coming back to what both of you brought up earlier about the discourse. I mean, what do you make of this juxtaposition, Jomo? People who say they want to understand it better and those who say, well, why even bother opening all, reopening all wounds? It's been 50 years, let's move on. I think there are multiple motivations for both positions. So I think it's very difficult for me to pass a sweeping comment about, about all these different motivations. But I think it is difficult to deal with the past. If you have a family scandal, many people would prefer to avoid talking about the family scandal. And in a way, this is a family scandal at a national level. You know? So, so you know, pe people would prefer not to talk about it. Uh, and, and even, even uh, you know, something which happened with your grandfather, you don't, you know, people often still prefer to avoid, avoid talking about it. And this, I think, is part of, the, part of the difficulty with dealing with the past. And also, because we have so many multi different accounts, we often think in terms of the ethnic accounts, but there are so many other accounts. You think about Tunku Abdul Rahman's report, uh, and you know, for him, Tunku Abdul Rahman, it was some big con communist conspiracy, and and uh, you know, and then this has been uh, elaborated in the KDAS uh, version of it and the Kwakya Sung edition of, of of that thing. Then you have the National Operations Council version, okay, uh, which obviously has a different purpose. Uh, but it's, uh, it contrasts completely. You would think that one of them is not telling, uh, is, is, 
I mean, you almost think they're two different accounts or yeah, two different two incidents. Two ends of the right? spectrum. And then you have other accounts. You have people, like there was a book called Democracy Without Consensus by a man named Calvin Voris. And the book is, is banned to, uh, uh, to this day, I think, uh, in, in the country. You know? And then you have uh, John Slimming's account. But the, the point is that there is no uh, attempt in any of these accounts to go beyond the immediate of what supposedly happened and maybe all these accounts have, have uh, you know, significant elements of truth in it. Uh, but the question is, how do we reconcile that and put together a, a composite uh, picture? And to do that, I think we need to have a larger discussion. So I think if we want to deal with history, I'm, I'm not terribly interested in dealing with every single historical controversy, but I think it says a lot, and this is what we mean by forwards and afterwards, you know, looking forward, you know, um, 50 years after, after May 69, we are still grappling with uh, many of the same kinds of issues or similar kinds of issues. And um, I, I'm not sure whether we have learned, we can learn if we do not have a conversation. But I don't, I'm not sure we have, can have a conversation um, which is very meaningful if we don't look at the antecedents, we don't address the fact that all what, what happened in May 69 is historically embedded. Let's face the fact that you know, it wasn't the first time the, the ruling coalition lost a majority was not uh, uh, 2013. It was 1969. In 1969, the, uh, the alliance did not have a, a, a majority, a plurality of the votes. Yes, the opposition was divided, and so they did not, uh, uh, could not be, be elected as such. But I, I think th there are these ver various things. But the, the fact that there was popular disillusion, you know, with the with the government of the day in uh, May '69 is important for us to begin to understand. Now, a particular take on it was the take which which uh, which uh, the, the the group which came to power, Tun Razak, led by Tun Razak, took on it which is basically to say that this was essentially a problem between the Malays and non-Malays or the, between the Malays and the Chinese, depending on which version you want to take on it. And the, the, the way you did it, and just remember the framing of the Ruku Negara and very importantly, the framing of the NEP. The NEP, the two so-called prongs of the NEP are not meant as ends in themselves, but rather means to an end. And what is the end? National unity. But national unity is not simply a question of resolving problems between Malays and Chinese. The, the, the legitimately elected government of Sarawak had been overthrown before, led by Stephen Kalong Ninkan. Nobody talks about that. Because after May 69, the problem in the peninsula especially was essentially defined in those terms. Because that was the easiest way to deal with it. Right. Now, a number of things he did have fundamentally changed the nature of economy, society, and polity, which we need to begin to talk, talk about. So we don't have to dwell with what happened in May 69. We need to talk about the last half, dec half century. And we, if we don't deal with that, I don't think we're going to get very far. And, and that's fair. And I think, I think that's absolutely where we should be going. I mean, there's, there's only so much we can do about the history of that day. But what we should also be thinking about is the repercussions of that day and how we have actually built a country based on the repercussions of how we reacted 
of that day. And I think, I think that's, that's really quite interesting because we now have to think about what's happened. The, the daily conversations that have led to today for the past 50 years makes up what we are as Malaysia. Um, I'm going to come back to the panelists and ask them about what they think, how they think we're going to have this conversation. Jomo said, it's time. It's time now we start talking about what's next, what's afterwards, right? What's, how do we reconcile this? And the, the question is, where do we begin? Where do we even begin talking about it when it's still, I would say, very much taboo to talk about racial tensions. It's used as a boogeyman by politicians, by political parties. Um, do we begin talking about it at the dinner table? Do we begin talking about it at literary festivals? Do we force our politicians to talk about it because we want, we want them to address governing the country through ethnic lines. How do you guys see this? I know it's a big question, but I'm going to let you think about that first, okay? Um, because you look like you're mulling. <laughs> so, Fon, do you want to even attempt to, to touch how you would begin having these types of conversations beyond your work? Uh, you mean beyond uh, literary writing? Beyond, beyond just, just beyond writing, beyond, uh, beyond literature. That means uh, I can start the work, let's say, in the daily conversation. Would you? Uh, would you have a conversation with someone, a stranger in this crowd, about real race relations in Malaysia? Real races? You mean like who? About where we are as a country. Would you have a conversation um, with someone in this crowd? Or is that considered a difficult topic? to talk about still? Well, um, I think this is a key question. Uh, how far the conversation we can go in between? Let's say, if that is between me and Hannah, I'm sure that is uh, much thing we, we can talk about, right? But if, let's say, I want to speak to someone from, the, from the, let's say, what is the name of the Bumi Putra Party? Uh, someone that Bus? is very, very hoo-hoo-ha-ha or the Pesatu. Okay, well, Pesatu. that could be a very, that could be a very, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, okay. That could be a very difficult because if, I mean, conversations means there is something we do share in the common. When there is something we share in the common, then there will be the possibility for us to talk about and mm -hmm. then to further exchange what are difference. So if there is already have um, prejudice yep. in between, then okay. the conversation to exchange our different points will be very, very difficult. Okay. So I think we have to have a lot of work uh, to work from everywhere. Are we, are we there? I mean, we can all agree that many of us have, you know, preconceived ideas, we are kind of set in our ways, our worldview may not be as open as they were, especially in this day and age of social media, you can, you, you can pretty much find someone to agree with your extreme way of thinking on the internet. So, I mean, given the current climate right now, are we even open to listening to one another talking about it? Hannah, do you want to just add to that? I know you had a think. I did. I, I, I had enough of a think and then something so fun thing was like, oh yes, I have something to say. <laughs> okay, you um, do that. <laughs> and let's hope it sounds, you know, vaguely intelligent. But at the time that I thought it, it came out really well. Um, but 
one of the things I wanted to say was that you are, the question that you asked Sok Fong was whether she'd be comfortable going to a stranger in this audience and talking about it. And that's a big ask, right? But I think part of it is also being comfortable not with strangers to talk about it, but with your own circles, like with your own family and your own friends and the people that you know, your own communities. Because for me, a large part of my of, of, of the lack of discussion in my own family about May 13th was also me being very uncomfortable asking my parents about May 13th. That was my own hang-up as well, that I thought that we, we were so ingrained with this idea that this is a taboo subject that I didn't want to bring it up with my own parents and ask them questions. And writing this book actually helped me ask them, where were you? What were you doing? What was it like for you? What did it feel like for the first time in my life? And I think part of starting the conversation is not just telling people, okay, now go do the hardest thing you can possibly think of and, and just go ahead and do it, just jump right into the talk waters. Go talk to a stranger, about, to a stranger race relations. about race relations in Malaysia. <laughs> Part of it is really starting with your own circles and your own communities and being willing to ask them the tough questions. Hannah, how do you talk to your children about this? I mean, I know they're very young kids still, <laughs> but what do you tell them? What do you tell them when someone looks different from you, when you see another race doing better than you. How do you talk to your children about that? My children are, for context, they're four and they're six. So the idea of race isn't really something that they have, uh, that they're not familiar with this concept yet, right? They don't really understand this, like at this level. Which is great. This is the chance that Jomo <laughs> said we should break ethnopopulism. No, so this is where been, we do it. We have had conversations about the fact, that especially with my six-year-old going into standard one next year, having been in preschool, having been in kindergarten and things like that. And he's a very sociable child, so he makes a lot of friends. Um, and we have had a lot of conversations about, you know, sometimes people look different from you and sometimes they speak differently from you and that's fine. That there isn't a reason for you to say you don't want to be friends with anybody. Um, people are people and they're just made in different shapes and sizes and with different thoughts and ideas and languages and part of the fun of being a human in a community is getting to know all of those different people. So on that level, that's what I talk to him about. Okay. Um, but if you don't point stuff out like that to children, if you don't train them to... to um, notice that somebody is different from them, they don't actually see it themselves. Until the state points it out for them. Until the so state points at, it at out. At least, you know, if it's at the dinner table, it's in a controlled environment, mummy can explain a bit better. Okay, um, let's see. We have, I saw there was a question here. Navia, do you mind running the mic to um, the lady? And I see another question there as well. We'll get to all the questions, as many as possible. Yes, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Mariam Lim. And uh, I was actually on the campus of Force College University, Malaya, when May 13 happened, with a bunch of 156 freshmen under my charge. Anyway, you asked whether we should start a conversation and whether we feel comfortable. I think we should. But for me, don't you think, before we even have this conversation, we should know fact from fiction. There are half-truths, there are solid truths, there are rumours, there's fake news. So, if both 
uh, dumb dumb people were having a conversation based on fake news, it can do more harm than good. So I think we must first want to get at the truth and be open and transparent about it. And then we can start a conversation. Do you agree? Is there anyone that you um, are directing this question? Actually, let's, let's just open it up to the panel. Uh, Jomo, I might start with you because you mentioned um, imagined memories. Is it related? Is your question related to this? Would you mind standing up, please, and, and asking? So, oh, it's oh, not okay. related. Oh, you, we'll, uh, we'll ask I, the questions first. Uh, yeah, we'll answer it first. Um, Joma, you mentioned imagined memories just now, and that, that phrase stuck with me. How do we begin to sort fact from fiction to identify the truth when, first and foremost, there are things like imagined memories? And there's also, let's not be shy to admit it, a severe trust deficit. So if you put out a report today, tomorrow there's a report that comes out, here's the truth about what happened, will you believe it? I think there are many, many approaches towards this. I think you can have uh, what is called the kumbaya approach or the muhiba approach. Okay? The kumbaya approach. Uh, and we, we all, we all you know, express our goodwill to one another and try to reconcile. And sometimes this is absolutely necessary. I don't want to be cynical about this. It is often necessary, especially given how divided and how antagonistic many protagonists are in our society. So let's not uh, dismiss the kumbaya approach or the muhiba approach. In the old days, you know, we, we look for things which everybody united around uh, uh, durian, uh, now nasi lama, you know, th things like that, you know. Um, but there's a limit to that, and it's not going to get us very far. Now, Mariam says truth before reconciliation. And I think there is something to be said for this approach. If you look at what happened in South Africa, there was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So you have everybody coming forward to say what actually happened and, and uh, uh, f f what they experienced, what they were complicit in, and so on and so forth, with the, with the assurance that... that, uh, that uh, Amnesty, right? Sorry? Amnesty, right? Yeah, so perpetrators were given amnesty? Yeah. And, and Archbishop Tutu was uh, led uh, a lot of this process, and it worked, I think, reasonably well. Um, during the height of the, uh, well, in, in, in 2016, uh, I advocated what I called a Truth and Restitution Commission for 1MDB. Okay, we want the truth. I don't want to throw the Prime Minister at that time into jail, but restitution, give back all the money. Okay? And I thought that was one way of, of solving the particular problem at that time. Of course, nobody was interested, you know, and, and it never got anywhere. So, but the truth is, is quite complicated because there are multiple truths. There are multiple truths because everybody has their own experience. Somebody yesterday was telling me uh, uh, he was on the other uh, he was on, it was, there, there was a confrontation in Kampong Baru and there were uh, 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 Chinese on the other side and uh, Malays were on this side and there was a, a hacking of a, of a, of a Chinese uh, lady and he felt very helpless. He was on the Malay side, okay? but he felt very helpless because it was almost impossible in that kind of a situation to do anything. What Yasmin Ahmad has, uh, did uh, bef before she, uh, she passed away 
uh, with some of the Petronas and other ads were also, in, in, in my way, very, very helpful. But all, all that basically, uh, basically uh, is essentially the Kumbaya approach. Okay? And then the truth uh, approach uh, has worked, as I said, uh, in South Africa. But how, how, what, where did we get there? What did we get? Where has South Africa really progressed after that? I, I'm afraid not. You know, unemployment rates in South Africa are still close to 40% in real terms, especially for the African, for the African population is extremely high. Inequality is very high. Thanks to following Malaysia, we've got two or three uh, black billionaires now, including the president. But, you know, so truth and reconciliation in itself may be a necessary, but not necessarily a sufficient condition. So how do we progress from there? And in, it is a very difficult conversation to have, especially when there's almost nobody seemingly interested in having the kind of conversation which I was trying to promote, namely to have a, a, a deeper and broader historical understanding of how we got into the mess and, and how do we get out of this okay. mess. And I, I'm afraid there, are, there isn't any demand for that. So I'm not saying that that's the only thing which is necessary. It probably needs to be combined with everything else. But there will be multiple truths and many people. It, it doesn't mean that any of the, of the people are being untruthful. It's just that that was a particular experience uh, in fourth college or, or whatever uh, uh, site people, different people were located in. Um, it, it, that in itself is no guarantee of progress. If you think about what happened after the American Civil War, a very divided society, it was the North which triumphed over the South. Slavery was abolished, but the promises in terms of slavery is abolition, uh, 40, mule, uh, 40 acres and one and a mule, nothing of that sort happened. And, but other things happened. You had industrialization in the North, and so it, it did uh, solve some of the issues. So there are, there are no easy answers, I'm afraid. You know? There are no easy answers. But it is very, obviously very necessary for us to have a multiplicity of uh, openness to a multiplicity of, of approaches in order for us to, to make progress. But thank you very much for your... I'm going to get to your question, but I want to follow up with Jomo. Some thinkers have said that the reason why we need to understand what happened with May 13th to find... The, the truth of what happened to separate fact from fiction is because re-examining the May 13th tragedy could remove the legitimacy of the post-1969 pro-Malay establishment, which would be necessary for the eventual removal of ethno-populist politics and economic policy. That's why we need to look at what happened at May 13th. Do you agree with that? Well, that's obviously one take on it, right? And it's, it's, a, it's a particular take from a particular perspective. And I think it needs to be articulated, it needs to be expressed, it needs to be part of the conversation. But the conversation, the getting to the tr truth alone is not, uh, is, you know, the truth part is the, is, was the e easier part than the reconciliation part, you know? And the reconciliation, who is being reconciled, okay? And where do we go from there? And 50 years have passed. So are we going to reconcile ourselves on the basis of something half, a, half, 
half a century ago and, and on the basis of of uh, you know your grandparents' generation or your great you know we, it's it's much much more complex than that. The problems which underlie why the, why many people were disillusioned with the with the alliance regime in the May 11th election. What do we know about that? It, the truth is important to establish because it is important to make sure, for example, that that the illusion that Lim Kit Siang was in KL. Uh, organizing the whole thing was not that's simply untrue okay or uh, you know okay. or, or, or so and so was doing this uh, uh, on the part of uh, you know uh, what was it called uh, I can't even remember the silat group's sure. names yeah? so so you're saying that reconciliation is does not necessarily mean progress for Malaysia no, truth you need the reconciliation we certainly need reconciliation. If anybody says we don't need reconciliation, I think we are living in a dream world. But more than that, we need progress. We need to resolve the underlying problems. And we, the underlying problems of today are very different from half a century ago. Okay. And we don't resolve the underlying problems today. We, we, have population, we have politicians, for example, who know nothing but ethnopopulism mm. you know, of one type or another. Then what what do you do in that kind of a situation? It's not, you know, I, I think the point, the question I'm raising is what do we, what are we trying to achieve? And we need to move on. We need to progress as a society, okay? And, and I, I I say the whole question about the story about the origins of Malaysia, not because I want to unravel Malaysia, but let's remember. That we are, we are, we are not the subject of history alone. We are, you know, uh, we are also the the victims of history to some extent. But it doesn't mean that we cannot recapture and try to become the subjects of history again. But if we're going to be, if we're just going to be the subjects of history and fight among ourselves because we have very, very uh, uh, different, uh, we are looking at, at the world through different lenses. Then I, I'm not sure we're going to get very far. All right, Mariam, thank you so much for your question. Uh, yes, the young man at the back uh, with the mic. Could you stand up uh, and introduce yourself, please? Uh, my name is Esan. Uh, uh, I just want to ask, are we in danger of losing the lessons of May 13 by abandoning uh, race as a form of analysis? Because the fact is, uh, why May 13 and many social upheaval happens, it is rooted in inequality. And in Malaysia, inequality is embedded in race, uh, in class, in uh, geography. So, to, so the reaction to uh, ethno-populism is almost this, uh, especially among liberal people, to abandon race. But this, uh, this cannot be abandoned completely. You must look at why uh, these social upheavals happen. The inequality in Malaysia when you don't think about inequality uh, with race and class and gender, I think it leads to the wrong uh, analysis and solution. And you can just look at uh, the Penang South reclamation uh, issue, for example. It's without thinking about race. You might think it's just, oh, it's just uh, fishermen being fishermen. But actually, it's this inequality uh, with a racial element to it. And why I think uh, worries me, we are losing this lesson from May 13, which is not to abandon race 
class, gender Thank you, in our sir. analysis. Thank you. Understood. All right. Um, ladies, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to let the economists answer this one. <laughs> All right. Um, in a, is inequality the biggest lesson of May 13th? And can we discount the demographics when addressing inequality? I think it's very important. The, the, the gentleman raised the question of race. Are we talking about human race or rat race? <laughs> it's a That's serious the, question. So human race Be or the rat race? Okay, because, because very often these categories, what we call race, are certainly not biological categories. They are categories which are socially constructed, right? And I'm sure you, you agree with that. Now, the, 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 the challenge for us is that you have a discourse, okay? And, and it is true what you said. We, we think about the inequalities between, let us say, Wilayah Pasukatuan or Penang, Penang Island and, and Kelantan, for example. It's a huge, the, the inequalities are huge. But when you look at overall inequality, and this was done, by the way, by a, 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 somebody who was teaching in Oxford at that time, Sudir Anand. Uh, the book is available. Um, um, and he, he tried to explain inequalities in Malaysia for 1970, okay? And he found that less than 5% could be explained by race. Less than or 5%? Less than 5%. And you know how he got the five, uh, the, the, the less than five percent, just by taking away all the other explanation, explanations for for inequality. So you, so it is actually a residual, okay. So even if you, and if you come up with other possible factors, you might end up with less than two percent, okay. I think this is very important for us to recognize, and we, this is true not only of Malaysia; it's true of of of, uh, for example. Uh, caste differences in India, it's true of uh, 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 ethnic differences in, in, in the U.S. And it cuts many ways, right? The, rich, the richest ethnic group is no longer a white ethnic group, uh, unless you think Iranians are, are white, okay? Uh, after all, they're supposed to be Aryans, right? Uh, and, 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 and so on and so forth. You know, you, be, you begin to, to, to look at, at different uh, societies and race almost doesn't explain anything in almost in, in, in most societies. It doesn't mean that communities, ethnic communities, don't gang together and help each other out. And if you think about the secret societies in this country, and if you think about Cosa Nostra uh, of Italians uh, uh, trying to survive in 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 the U.S. Mm -hmm. or in in Argentina, or if you think about Irish people trying to get together, gangs of New York, okay, for want of a better reference, you begin to realize that what we call gangs, what we call secret societies, are ways in which of mutual help, okay? And, and uh, you know, and, and so we begin to, to begin to understand, for example, um, the, 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 the Chinese community, the dialect groups, and so on and so forth, and why the 1930s was so important, because you have a combination of being categorized as Chinese on the one hand, you have the attack, the, the invasion of, Jap of, of China by J the Japanese, and then you have all the refugees coming here to teach in Chinese schools. And so you begin to realize that how important, you know, Sun Yat-sen was Cantonese, okay? But he, he voted against Cantonese to be the national language of China, okay? 
And, you know, we begin to understand. I, I'm not sure he would have had done that if he hadn't been in Malaya for over a year. You know, we begin to, begin to understand our history very, very differently. Mm. You know, why did Indonesians choose Malay as the national language? It's less than 2% of the population. But Malay was chosen as the national language because Javanese was full of, 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 of darjat, um, uh, castes. Yeah. You know, you have a different, uh, you know, Kromo is different from Kraton, and so on and so forth. So you, you, you see that the republican tendencies of the leadership of the Indonesian revolution chose Malay because it was devoid of this kind of darjat. Now, a lot of our darjat in our society, despite P. Ramli's best efforts, our darjat, in, uh, uh, a lot of it is invented. It's a lot of it is invented. And we be begin to realize this when we begin to look at different cultural traditions in different parts of society. Look at, 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 at uh, uh, Razak Lubis's book on Mandeling, for example. Mm. You know? And, and uh, Minangkabau. Are, Minangkabau, I never heard of a Raja in Minangkabau. You know? But we have... Uh, okay, I better... Let <laughs> me <laughs> <laughs> stop. Um, Esan, did he answer your question? Do you... You all right? Okay, all right. You can you can pick a fight with Prof Jamal afterwards. I'll let you do that. Uh, there was a lady behind him, but this young woman also had her hand up for a while. Navia, just mind running her question very quickly. In fact, we can take both questions and then we can just address to the panel. Thank you. Uh, this is a question for the ladies, and to give it a bit of context, I am a teacher in a majority Chinese high school. I teach upper form. Uh, but I am born and bred in KL. So there is a very obvious class difference as well as a sort of a language barrier because uh, it, like my, I'm Chinese, but my Mandarin is atrocious. So I have kids coming up to me and with my very limited Mandarin uh, and their best efforts to explain themselves, uh, they tell me things uh, that I think echo what Sook Fong has said about Victim, the tone of victimization in Chinese mm -hmm. communities. And it's very difficult to have that conversation with them because it's, I ask them where they get this from and it's from their parents. And uh, when I do quick math, their parents, um, they don't live through May 13, but they've heard it from their parents. Okay. So then Inherited comes, memories. Yes, it becomes a very culturally uh, infused narrative. Okay. So my question is, uh, and, and, oh, and so because my Mandarin is also limited, uh, and they don't see me as a Mandarin person because I don't speak Mandarin that well. So then how would I begin to deconstruct this narrative? I think also bearing in mind that I do teach sejarah. So you, it's a question teach, for the ladies. You teach history. Yeah, yeah. Um, I That's... teach history under the Teach for Malaysia program. Okay. So we get sent to high need schools for two years. Yeah, nice. so my question for Sokfong is, have you ever encountered this uh, traitor sort of thing and how would you have dealt with it? And my question for Hannah is, because um, I also know you've worked in Teach for Malaysia briefly, uh, what would your advice be given the, the tangent towards young adults? Okay, yeah. thank you. Your thank name you. is? Jing Han. Thank you so much. All right. So, Fung, do you want to answer that first? I mean, when, when she as a teacher encounters this with the students, these inherited memories, how would you respond? Uh, this has happened. I don't know if she has read my story of a liquid mirror. Lake Like a Mirror, the protagonist in the Lake Like a Mirror is a Chinese teacher. But from an uh, English uh, stream background, he, she teaches uh, English 
literature in the university and she faced a repressive uh, political uh, threats. It felt uh, unsafety to keep uh, her job when, when certain uh, sensitive issues come out in, the, in, in her teaching. So why I write this character is uh, actually for a very long time, I have been aware in the Chinese society uh, that is a, the, the Chinese society is not, is not having an identity as a whole. We actually has, uh, because uh, the Chinese uh, come from a different uh, background, uh, from an education stream, so they are the Chinese from a, from a, uh, with a Chinese Mandarin background. It's, the culture or the way of thinking uh, and the language is very much different from a non-Chinese uh, stream background. So I always aware of this uh, since uh, teenager in the in the school of Bangsaan, because I I suddenly met a lot of uh, uh, class class classmates come from a different races and also a. Uh, education background. So I will say in terms of uh, encountering with a student that have a, have a uh, trauma, traumatic uh, uh, experience uh, uh, with the past history. So as a teacher of uh, history, I, I feel that since I'm, 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 I'm not at the, at the position, I'm afraid I will be too easy to give a suggestion. But I will say, uh, I deeply will say uh, the traumatic is something uh, we can't avoid ever. We can't, I agree with Jomo, we can't go to anywhere if we just, oh, this is, this is, this is just the past. Uh, and then we embrace the muhiba because it is also very hard for the, for the Chinese because as I said earlier, we have a lot of discussion over this. And I, I found that after 10 years, I think should be 10 years we have this awareness and lately, there is also another voice saying that if, if he fail to voice out this trauma, is guilty. Actually, there is a danger in, in here. If Chinese feel that to bring out the trauma or the victimized voice, it is very guilty. It is not healthy. Guilty for the Chinese families to speak guilty up? Guilty for saying that we are the victim of the system. Or feel guilty for saying it? Yes. Okay. This is not good. Actually, this is not good or not healthy for the psychology, as either as a personal individual or as a racist. So I feel, actually, I think this is uh, where there is a question starting, and I will see this as a beginning for more for the discussion. Next, for more, the more discussion. discussion. Hannah. Um, to be clear, I was never a teacher under Teach for Malaysia. I did communications for them. So I worked in the office and not like with students. So I don't want to make it seem like I'm giving you very prescriptive advice when I've never been in the situation that you have been in. Having said that, being an author for young adults, I work with a lot of young adults now and I speak to a lot of young adults. And what I think you'll find is that in a lot of spaces, Young adults are often condescended to, spoken down to, and fed a certain type of narrative and told to accept it. So I think part of what you can do as a, an adult figure in their lives, who is, <laughs> I love how you're like, eh, sort of. But part of what you can do as, as their teacher is to create a space where they are allowed to ask those questions and where you yourself push back 
ask them questions about the narrative that they are telling you so that they can begin to interrogate it for themselves. It's critical thinking. Yes. <laughs> Something we lack. You know, and, and like, yeah, you're supposed to inject that into the school system anyway, apparently. But that's what I would, that's what I would suggest is because a lot of young adults in, in where we are are not encouraged to ask questions. And they're not encouraged to think that the views that they have are important. And I think if you can create a space where they are allowed to ask those questions and you do your best to answer them with honesty and, and respecting their autonomy as young people, then I think you are well on your way to helping them at least start those conversations among themselves. Thank you for that, uh, ladies. We'll come to the question, but you know, something that Jomo said just now is just kind of lingering in my mind, and none of us up here are historians, but I'm sure there's a couple of historians in the crowd. So if you are a historian, something Jomo said uh, has been playing on the, in the back of my mind. When you talked about South Africa and that commission, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, one of the reasons why they did that was to restore faith in record-keeping of history. And I'm just wondering what May 13th has done for our faith in history recording. If there's a historian in the crowd, in the audience today, you want to comment on that, just uh, raise your hand and share with us. But I would like to give this young lady who's been waiting for a long time the mic now. Navia, could you please raise your hand? Yep, that's the one. Just ask your question very quickly, please. Thank you. Thank you for calling me a young lady. I'm not that young. Good afternoon, my name is Karen Lai. I want to say three things. The first is a personal observation. The remaining two are questions for Prof Jomo. So firstly, I think, um, I think all of us in this room are past the point of feeling shy to talk about the topic. Good. We're here to you know, have the truth uh, you know, dark and bitter and, and unsweetened. So I, I'm, I'm good for that. Let's move past that. Okay? So um, secondly, I want to ask, I really appreciate Prof Jomo's statement about how May 13th you know, was really a product of colonialism as well. I really appreciate that. It's not an incident in isolation, but arose from a number of factors. Uh, I would be interested in hearing more of the story. I feel like I got bits and pieces from the conversation, and I really want to hear the rest of what Prof has to say about it. That's one. Um, and secondly, uh, I think the suppression of the political and economic left, to some extent, was part of this development. Uh, I'm interested to know what you, how much you think the reintroduction of the left, politically and economically, is part of the solution. Thank you. Thank you. All right, I think what we need to do is organize a lecture by Prof Jomo to talk about this because we could, we could listen to him talk about it all day, right? And a panel discussion is very, very limiting, but I will do my best. Uh, Prof, do you want to just elaborate a bit more clearly? There's interest in understanding the uh, colonialism context when understanding our history and charting our progress going forward. Well, um as the lady was raising a question, there was a sign saying that we are running out of time. So, Sorry so guys, it was let, a big let, sign let, at the let back. Me, let me uh, try to be very brief. Um, I, I think, sorry, in, in response to the earlier point, I think it's very important to recognize that um, there's a paucity of literature, even in the Chinese language, about the character of Malayan Chinese society. There's a wonderful book written at the soon after independence called uh, by Huang Chilian, but almost nobody has read it. You know, very, very few people have read it because it's not easily available. And, and so I think it's very important to recognize that many of us, 
you know, not just the Chinese or the Indians or the Malays. A lot of us not only don't even know about Malaysian society, but also our own societies. Now, coming back to the lady's question about colonialism, I think there are so many dimensions of colonialism for us to begin to appreciate, and this cannot be done in, in the course of, you know, to, to do justice to your question. I think it's very fundamental, but what I really appreciate uh, is the fact that in the course of this year, there have been uh, a couple of books at least written, and, and recent books, a number of other books, uh, which, which actually help us to begin to understand this. I would recommend, for example, uh, 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 Sultan Nazarin's book, especially the, the, the tr attempt to try to understand how important uh, the first 40 years were for the British Empire, you know, and, 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 and uh, um, uh, for, for, sorry, first 40 years of the last century were for the British Empire. But there were earlier books by uh, Lee Dunjan, for example, again out of print, called British Malaya, where a lot of this is covered. And then I'm very pleased that uh, Martin Kaur recently reprinted uh, his, his book, uh, uh, Structures of the Malaysian Economy, where many of these, I think it's on sale next door, uh, but I don't get a cut for this. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it begins to help us to understand uh, not only the impact of colonialism, but the ongoing consequences of that type of economy and how it has constrained subsequent development. On the other question of the, of, uh, of the, 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 the left discourse, I think we have seen two major, three major repressions. The repression of the 1930s, the repression in the post-war period, particularly 47, 48 onwards, and then the third repression, basically 64, uh, which, is the, which is over half a century ago. And, and then um, you, you really didn't even have to do work very hard because there were all these other uh, uh, competing uh, uh, worldviews uh, which, which came to dominate. So you didn't even, you know, all you needed to say is that, ah, so-and-so, uh, that's a communist thing, you know. Or, or you know, you, you just, it was easy to dismiss it. And, but today what has happened? You have the MCA, at meetings, they start off talking about Tongjiman. Okay, for those of you who don't know, it means comrades. Okay, this is, they are using the language of the Communist Party. Okay, they, you know, so, so what we have seen is even the, even language has been appropriated by the party of the, of, of capital, of business. Okay, so, so it, it's very difficult to replicate, and what does it mean to have a left alternative at in the, going into the third decade of the, of the 21st century? I don't think we can just hark back to the past, but what it means in the present period is, is very, very uh, important. So going back to the earlier question of the gentleman in front of you, for example, how do we begin to, re to, to deal with the fact of what people call precariousness? The fact that, in a sense, for, for many people, especially for the younger generation, they might have resigned themselves and, and, and they enjoy the so-called freedom. But the freedom of precariousness is fine as long as you have close to full employment as we have in Malaysia. But look at the precariousness of people in the rest. So only by beginning to recognize these anxieties you know, and, and recognize uh, the a range of problems and the vulnerabilities of our society uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, 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 I'm, 
I am not really answering your question in any great depth, but I think we, we really need a, a larger conversation. And as Melissa uh, suggested, you know, uh, we, we need to have a larger conversation on many of these uh, crucial issues. But thank you. All right, folks, I've just been told by the director of the festival that this is such an interesting session that he'd like to extend it. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're going to make the panelists work a little Thanks. All right. Um, so what we're going to do is that the, there are other sessions happening right now. So if you would like to attend other concurrent sessions, feel free to make your way. But for those who are interested in staying and perhaps asking more questions, listening to the panelists a little bit more, we're going to continue for a few more minutes. Uh, we're going to keep this con uh, conversation going since everyone in this room is so excited about this conversation. Uh, there, are there any questions for the questions? I might take a few at one go. Um, there's one, any more? All right, here, you know what? Take my mic. All right, so do we have, can we just have a quick show of hands of the different questions? Uh, do we have just the one question? Yes. All right, sir, your name? Uh, good afternoon, I'm Mr. Teo. I'm a third generation Malaysian born. And uh, 50 years has passed since May 13. And I think this nation is mature enough to move forward. So could you, do you mind just repeating it? I, I missed the first bit. Um, from the beginning? Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm Mr. Theo. I'm a third generation Malaysian born. And 50 years has passed since May 13. And I think this nation is matured enough to move forward since they voted for the Pakatan government. That means there's hope. And I think it's also the time for reconciliation on this chapter. And seeing Mr. Mr. Como is part of the Council of Eminent People, I hope they find the time necessary to work on this subject and to correct what has been done and which make a lot of Malaysians that leave our community and stay abroad. We are close to a million. A lot. And I know in my kampong, each and every one of us knows somebody who has left the kampong. Then so your question is, Mr. Teo? Uh, my uh, question is for Mr. Como, uh, how he's going to address the brain drain of this nation and help reconciliation of Malaysian people since he's part of the government. Thank you. Okay, he's not part of the government. I just have to, um, to clarify. I think you have to solve the problem of brain drain and uh, re national reconciliation in 10 minutes. Go. Um, thank you very much, Mr. Teo. But uh, firstly, um, I, I, I'm afraid I'm, I'm not a member of the... I'm, I'm not afraid. I'm quite happy I'm not part of the government. Uh, um, um, I... I I am privileged, of course, as, uh, to have been invited to be a member of the Council of Eminent Persons, which, by the way, closed down uh, 16 months ago. It doesn't exist. Okay, So uh, any purported present things by the Council is, is fake news. Okay, now, 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 I think it's also important to recognize that there is another Council which has been created, 
which was originally called the National Economic Action Council, uh, there's certainly no action. Uh, and and uh, uh, I, I am uh, privileged to be part of that council. Uh, now, I can tell you with all honesty and if, uh, without fear of contradiction that I have made several suggestions, none of which have been implemented. Okay, so uh, I, I've been working on about uh, half a dozen different fronts. Uh, and uh, 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 I think it, 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 we, there are multiplicity of problems and politicians uh, face different constraints from what uh, a relatively free-thinking person uh, might, might feel. So, so I can understand why some of them have been rejected, but I, I really feel that some of them were uh, what in football parlance would be called own goals. You know, uh, you, know you, you really make unnecessary mistakes. So I, I, I do think we have a, a, a very difficult situation that because of the influence of these ideas from the past, politicians from both sides are not able to transcend that. That, that, that we are prisoners of our of our uh, past, uh, our understandings of the past and are unable to really think beyond that discourse. And I don't think it, I, I think it's very easy to blame it all on Bersatu. Or, or, you know, and it's actually much more serious problem than that. And, and uh, I think, for example, it is very important for us to begin to realize that, uh, that uh, you know, uh, you, you take, for example, a, a view of what, uh, uh, of what it means if you do not have alternative financing arrangements uh, for for for, for for political parties. What does it? What what the temptation always is for party leaders to try to find ways, which are you know to to, to fund their, their their own activities. So I think it's very important that we begin to realize that they, there are these constraints and realities, and we need to begin to realize them. And, and uh, in, in trying to go forward. Um, now, I, I think it's also very important for us to realize that, um, I mean, I'll give you an example of something I have, I have put forward, okay? Um, not because I want, uh, but I, I think it just shows you many of the dilemmas involved. I put forward a program that all children in this school should be, benefit from, uh, all children in government schools, including as our Case uh, and SRJ case, okay. Uh, uh, in, that means uh, those in, in, uh, should all uh, uh, get uh, one meal, uh, a, a solid meal a day. And the Ministry of Health has actually uh, experimented with this, but most of the schools which are participating in it are actually uh, SRJK Chinese schools, and not all of them. So, for example, the experiments are going on in Johor. Okay, so you 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 find that Skola Janis Kebangsaan uh, Yongping one is not interested, but Yongping two is interested, and it has it, it it provides meals for the equivalent of two ringgit a day, uh, uh, a a meal which is prepared by dietitians, but. Because this is coming from Ministry of Health and not from the Ministry of Education, Ministry of Education uh, does, has, has, has not really participated in this. Now, because the government says we've got no money for, for all this, 
uh, what has happened is that uh, somebody else comes up with, we are going to raise the money from the private sector. Now we know from other countries, from Indonesia and elsewhere, that once the private sector does it, it's going to be compromised to suit the private sector's interest. Right. So for example, you have milk, okay? Not only is it milk, you know, there are cheaper ways of getting protein, there are cheaper ways of getting calcium. Uh, but the milk which we serve, which we serve to young kids, is is sweet, sweetened with sugar. So the, the the children are being exposed at an early age, and one of the biggest problems in Malaysia is the fact that we have the highest level of incidence of obesity and diabetes on the Asian continent. Okay, we are now in the top three. We compete with Brunei and and Jordan. Okay, for 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 being number one. These are self-inflicted goals. My friend Khalid Kadeh, who's a medical doctor, joined the, the, the started the, the, getting the Diabetes Association to be active in this area about 30, th more than 30 years ago. And he has lost. He has lost. The levels of diabetes have gone up tremendously. We have problems of malnutrition in Putrajaya, which are frightening. You know? And these are the civil servants. You know? and, and, you know, so, so we have... We have we have a society where a lot of problems are self-inflicted, but we do not have the ability of getting one ministry to cooperate with another ministry. And I would like a third ministry, the Ministry of uh, Agriculture, to be involved in producing much healthier food. The only time you, you know anything about food safety is when our food is, is blocked from in the causeway from going to Singapore. That's the only time you know that there's, there's extra excessive use of, of agrochemicals. So, you know, we need to have, you know, we, we need to con change the conversation in our country so that parents are concerned and insist that they, have, they are able to monitor the, the, the safety of food and so on and so forth. There are a whole range of other issues, but the point I want to try to make is that there are a huge number of problems which we have inherited from the past, including bureaucratic problems, and there are no e the solutions are not easy, but I ho do hope that civil society, and I mean civil society rather than a, a bunch of uh, foreign uh, finance NGOs, civil society will be able to assert itself. And, and one area, of course, is through parent-teachers associations, people asserting themselves when Hannah's child goes to school, you know, insisting on, 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 on for example, opening up such a program. There's it starts a lot from which the grassroots, is it? It starts from the grassroots. It starts from the ground up. Essentially, yes, mm -hmm. and wherever we, we, I, I think we can all do a lot, you know. I mean, one, one of the I, I didn't want to elaborate too much, but Yongping Two is right next to a Tamil school, and the children from the Tamil school now come to have their meals uh, uh, in in the in the Yongping Two. Two. Okay, and the, the the but the children of Tamil schools are, are are quite poor, so they cannot the parents cannot afford to pay forty ringgit uh, up front. So they pay 250 a meal instead of two ringgit a meal, which is what it costs, you know. Uh, and so, so there are a lot of problems which can easily be resolved, you know. Frankly, I, 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 in many other countries, I mean, we are supposed to be on the cusp of becoming a developed, uh, a high-income country, and we are having problems which are which are really avoidable problems, you know. And and so we really need to 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 begin to have society making demands and, and, and uh, you know, in order to improve our lives in common, 
You know, I mean, the, the question of whether an agro, agro, uh, toxic agrochemical uh, effect, you know, it's not going to discriminate between a Malay child and a, and a Chinese child and an Indian child. You know, the, the toxicity, toxicity is going to affect all of us. Okay? And, and likewise with the, you know, um, excessive use of antibiotics and so on and so forth. Let me stop. I'm, I'm no, no, that's okay. No, because <laughs> we got the sign, the sign for time again. I just, I, I don't mind if you go on. I just want to ask if there's any more questions. I, I do want to give an opportunity to, I'm going to take them both, one at the end and one at the front. Can we go to the end first and then run back up front? We have a few minutes left. Could you introduce yourself and uh, your question, please? Yeah, um, thank you very much, uh, panelists. My name is June. Um, so I just wanted to, uh, two quick things. I view Prof. Jomo, there's a lot of things we need to improve and ministries look together. And also the thing that was worrying at the back of my mind was Jaya has the highest number of malnutrition but also the highest number of children stunting. So that highlights a lot of things that need to be improved, which can be improved. Ministries working together with CSO and addressing this problem inequality. But the second thing that's at the back of my mind is that when you talk about reconciliation, what would be your vision? Or if I quote the example for Rwanda, some of my colleagues are there. And though the reconciliation process has started between the Hutu and the Tutsis, there's still fear of the Tutsis being killed by the Hutus. And whenever April comes again, that fear is felt nationwide. So if we start the process of reconciliation, is, are there mechanisms to sort of like address these fears and what would be the vision for reconciliation? Because I myself have no idea what actually happened on May 16th. Sorry, May 13th. Okay, all right. Yeah, thank you. So that, was that your question? Can we run very quickly and get the question up front? Could you raise your hand? Who was it? Yes, that's right, Lady in Green. Hi, I'm Mi Kwan. Um, I would like to ask this question. What do you think the role of education in our country? I mean, what can an education system play a role in this topic? Yeah, okay. In, yeah. Big questions to answer in five minutes. Um, let's, let's take June, was it? Was that June? June's question um, at the back. I have to say I agree with you. What does reconciliation mean even? What does it mean to us? Okay, they've gone quiet on me now. Does anyone want to attempt this? <laughs> Jomo, Hannah, Sukfong, anyone? Anyone? <laughs> okay. Or do you want to do the education question first? Someone want to no, attempt that? I think um, I have I have a I have a. Uh, founding on the, I want to talk on the literary, since this is a literary festival, literary festival so, yes. so let's go back to this uh, literary. <laughs> so is that, uh, what is the reconciliation means uh, after uh, so much, uh, let's say, if, if we, do we talk about uh, May 13, would that be uh, to endow? There are always a question like this. But I remember I read the novel, the Greek novel uh, from uh, the last uh, two years back, uh, that is a novel, uh, the title with uh, the Buried Giant, Buried Giant. I, you know, when I read this novel, I feel that this novel should be written by someone from Malaysia because so much alike like us. 
in the novel, there is a, there is a mist, there is a haze. We have haze here, we have the haze here from Indonesia, and we have the memory that we cannot remember what is the truth. And we have the harmony, muhiba, based on we don't talk on the past. So I think the question that the novelist asks is also meaningful to us, that uh, there is a need to, to, to go. Uh, there's, there's a story, a plot in the story that is a, there is a river, and there is a boat uh, need to take over someone from this side to another side. That means this is a huge question for, the, for our life. For, for the whole nation, either it is individual or the whole ethnic. So how you get over this? I mean, did, he asked a question, when do we let go and when do we continue? I mean, you want to get over, really get, get over this, then you have to remember the past and you have to really go through it. There is no way, no way you say you forget the past. And if you forget the past, the whole muhiba is, will be like a false, Dream. Hannah, have you thought about it? What do, you, what do you think the role of education is in all this? In I reconciliation? A lot. a lot of things to say about education system. But like, I, I don't want to go too much into that because this is meant to be a panel about May 13th. But <laughs> I think we've moved on it, from I that. Think, I think we have, but you know, I keep trying to bring it nudge, back. nudge it back towards what we're supposed to be talking about. But to answer your question, I think the problem is our education system, so much of the inequities and the classism and all of that, the things that Professor Jomo already touched on are actually baked into our education system as well. And it is very difficult, therefore, to extricate yourself from all of that. Um, the problem is that all our manufactured, um, what was the term that you used just now? All our manufactured, like, controversies, all our manufactured, uh, everything that we, we're going through right now is manufactured, right? But now they have become entrenched systems and pulling yourself out of a kind of entrenched system like that is extremely difficult. I know because I worked with an NGO that was trying to change those inequities, right? At a very basic level, if you are a teacher within that system, then I think you need to concentrate not on the greater ideas of how do you dismantle that system, but how do you work within it to best influence your students and create pathways for them to start questioning everything that they're being taught. Did that make sense? I started that sentence and I got all the way to the end and I'm like, I hope that makes sense. Do you want to try again? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it'll work the second time around. Okay. Is that all right for you? All right, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we're going to end it here. A big round of applause for our panelists, please. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful audience. It's been so engaging. Please stay, we have another session called